tell you, Dr. Man, I'm honored to be a part of this. But once we set up base camp, secure those modules, my work's done here. I'm going home. You have attachments. And even without a family, I can promise you that that yearning to be with other people is powerful. That emotion is at the foundation of what makes us human. It's not to be taken lightly. You know why we couldn't just send machines on these missions, don't you, Cooper? The machine doesn't improvise well because you can't program a fear of death. Our survival instinct is our single greatest source of inspiration. Take you, for example, a father with a survival instinct that extends to your kids. What does research tell us is the last thing you're going to see before you die? Your children, their faces. At the moment of death, your mind's going to push a little bit harder to survive. For them. Parth Marate, hello, co-host of the podcast, Craft Services, the podcast. This is all, this is all true information, but I want, I want some information from you, Trent. What's that? What have, well, you want me to know, you want to know what I want to ask you? Yeah, what do you want to ask me? I, this may come as a shock, but I'm, I'm, I just, I come to this podcast, I get ready to record, and I just start wondering, ah, 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 You make all those noises, and then? Yeah. Yeah, on air, and then and then I'm like, what's what's in what's in little Trenty baby's stomach? What's he been eating? And I and I think in like that accent, you know. Yeah, you say, what is my good friend Trent digesting currently? I wouldn't say good friend. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it that way. But co-host, definitely. So thanks for asking. Um, I just had a bowl of honey nut Cheerios. That sounds, you know, exotic, extravagant. Yeah, no, not too much to say. Um, definitely one of my top three favorite cereals alongside... All right, Parth, we're going to try to make this interesting. If you could only have three cereals for the rest of your life, what would they be? Mine are Honey Nut Cheerios, Frosted Mini Wheats, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Final answer, you. Okay, I'm going to go with Honey Nut Cheerios, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Whoa, Whoa we have a lot in common. Either Fruit Loops or Apple Jacks. I think the rule is you need to have like two that are like dependable that you could, like, have in the morning, the, yeah. and then you need a treat cereal. Because if you had to go the rest of your life without a sugary cereal, you'd want to die. Here's the thing, is that I would need Honey Nut Cheerios because that's a pretty baseline, not super sweet. It's, like, pretty It's average. sweet enough, it's nothing. totally. It's it's not normal But, but on the, bo- on the and, box, it still claims that it's, like, heart-healthy, and I don't know how believable that is, but I'm willing to turn a blind in, eye. In a previous episode, you said that Raisin Bran was the most boring cereal, and I have to disagree because I think normal Cheerios are the most boring cereal because they're they're nothing but honey nut cheerios they're they're acceptable and then cinnamon toast crunch because it's really fun but you can't have it too many days in a row without feeling like a monster and a threat to society were you allowed sugary cereal as a child not really i mean not not allowed it's the thing is i never my parents were like well i mean you can't have that all the time we can buy it but you can't have it every day yeah. and so then i'd just be like well then i don't i don't really want it because then i'll just want to eat it the willpower to not you know sneak into the pantry in the middle of the night yeah little five-year-old parth didn't have that kind of impulse control but 20 year old parth he's a new man mm-hmm. he's literally a man now and well um and for le- for um, legal reasons you're a man but yeah uh, i can be sent off into war but i can't drink and i never have um but right trent yeah, sure. You've Parth. I, I can attest. You've never consumed alcohol in any of its forms—liquid, solid, gas, gaseous states—in all forms. And Parth, believe it or not, like 
you're a really fun guy to hang out with in college, even though you don't, um, you, you, and I don't hang around anybody that does that kind of stuff is what I think makes me pretty great. Oh, you mean bad, you you mean bad influences? Yeah. You know, people imagine like the quality of the pod, if alcohol were involved, do you think it would crash and burn or do you think we would just be more entertaining to listen to? So 20-year-old Parth has more impulse control, and so now every now and then we get Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Mm-hmm. Um, but I need fruit. I think Fruit Loops and Apple Jacks are like a middle ground where they're not Cheerios, but they're not so whatever. So I feel like sometimes I could have those. Because I think as a kid, I would get Fruit Loops and Apple Jacks more often than other cereals because my parents, they were like a... A compromise. They were an acceptable enemy to my parents. I think Fruit Loops and Apple Jacks are like pr- a pretty small percentage of like real food, especially with like the color that both of those things oh, yeah. are. You know what I can't abide? What's that? I couldn't. Ab- I, I I don't remember if this was actually a thing, but you know, you remember there would be like like little like chocolate chip cookie crisps or whatever. Like, t- I can't abide that as a cereal. I can't. That's 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 just candy. That's just I, well, I like I totally That's not cereal. I totally agree with you and especially the fact that it's a miniature cookie doesn't make like it's hard to defend it. But I think Fruity Pebbles falls into the same boat. Honestly, like so does Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I I'm not happy about it either. I I guess like I guess I I can concede that. It just in my head it's like that's I could maybe every now and then give my kid, my future potential kid mm-hmm. that also will be not interested in drugs or alcohol. Um, which I guess is also a drug, but, um, I could see giving my kids some cinnamon toast crunch. And then, like, looking at your, at your reflection. And, and being like, I'm a good dad, mm-hmm. or I'm, I'm an okay maybe dad. Maybe you could give them I'm not cin- there much. Maybe give it... The divorce settlement cost a lot, but, but I don't think I could really give them co- Cocoa Crisps? What the fuck is it yeah, called? Yeah, Cocoa Crisps. And I could not do that. You don't remember the Coco Chris commercials? They had a mascot, and he was like a big wolf, and he ran around with a spoon. I guess every cereal kind of has. It's like it's like the only food group that's like really big on mascots. Like every every note every yeah. noteworthy cereal, even hot fucking Honey Nut Cheerios. Welcome to WatchMojo.com, and today we're counting down our picks for the top ten breakfast cereal mascots. Wait, who's the? the is it the heart? No, it's the bee. What? Ah, oh, fuck yeah, you're right. No, because there's like the heart. It's like it's good for your heart, and I'm like, I don't, I don't buy that. No. But okay. Wait, Parth, what have you? It's tasty. What have you eaten? This cereal discourse has really gotten out of hand. Yeah, we're recording right as of recording right now. It's 1:45 p.m. Um, I had a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Um, Was peanut butter and jelly like the cornerstone of your elementary school brown bag diet? Um, no, uh, I, well, I would have, my mom would uh, give me Indian food, so I would have paratas, mm-hmm. um, I would have parata like, when she would give me food, uh, but as I got older, probably by, like, fifth grade, I would just buy School lunch. lunch. The cafeteria yeah. ladies were always so charming. Maybe to you. <laughs> I know, I know how involved you are with older women. It went in phases. There was like there was an Uncrustables time, and then I when you're a kid and you have peanut butter and jelly every day for like three months, and then after the third month, you're like, okay, now now this dish repulses me, and then you transition to bagels. 
bagels with butter, and then you go bagels with cream cheese, and then you're introduced to lunch meat, and that's when things get really interesting. Turkey for a month, roast beef for a month, you know, a little, little, little roasted chicken for a month. Um, anything is possible. But then when you reach middle school and you have to start making your own lunch, your standards really start to go down quick. Mm. Well, you just recently said that uh, anything is possible, and that's kind of how I felt about our main thing of the day. So should we, our main movie, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always there. Coming in clutch yeah. with the transition. After eight and a half you know? minutes, you're swooping in with this timely transition. Trent, that's enough talking. Uh, let's cut to the intro. So is this going to be one of the pods we do shirtless? Welcome back to... Craft Services, our show, where we talk about... Our podcast. Yep, we have one, a podcast, where we talk about the movies. Um, each week, we interview someone who like worked on a film, and then the next week, Parth and I, and sometimes a special guest, sit down, shoot the shit, and discuss it. Wait, Trent, we have a special guest today? Nope. This is one of those times uh. where it's... Parth, we only have so many friends who are willing to come on the show and one of these days yeah we only have so many friends yeah period i'm glad we didn't we don't have a format where we actually need a special guest every week because we no it'd be madness and this podcast would go behind schedule all the time because simply like we would either have to change the format which would just be insulting to the fans at home or we would have to go through great inconvenience to go out into the world and try to, like, meet new people who are, like, interested in chatting with us and, like, willing to have it recorded. And and that's out of the question. Like, meeting new people. I look mean. at us. Like, I mean, we're lucky to have the few associates that we've, that you know, that we've... That we've accumulated over the that years. That we've catfished and, you know, haven't figured out that it's just all one big elaborate podcast revolving lie. Because at the end of the day, it's not the friends who will be there, because friends die. Um, <laughs> but the podcast lives forever. Trent, you told me off camera that you had something you needed to get to, something you need to say about our... I mean, we're, we're talking about Interstellar this week. Side note, listen to our interview with assistant editor John Lee. We uploaded that last week. He was super nice. And yeah, he likes Parth's tweets sometimes, which makes him and he replies e- sometimes. extra nice. Um. The thing I wanted to ask you is what text did I send you at 3.30 a.m. last night, and what did you respond to that text? <laughs> uh, I'm, open up my, I'm opening up my phone. So, well, let me, let me give some context. Please. You, you, you texted me at 12 a.m. Midnight. Uh, at midnight. Uh, and I'll, I'll try my best Bobby De Niro because it was his birthday the day before. When as of time recording, I'm so happy you're gonna do this. What's the fucking matter with you? What what is the fucking matter with you? Are, what are you stupid or something? Tommy, Tommy, I'm kidding with you. What the fuck are you doing? What are you a, a fucking sick maniac? He shoots him in a forty thousand go fuck himself. Tommy, you gonna let him get away with that? You gonna let this fucking punk get away with that? What's the matter? What's the world coming to? <laughs> fucking world is coming to how do you like that 
How's that, all right? What's the fucking matter with you? What's the, what, what is the fucking matter with you? What are you, stupid or what? Tommy, I'm kidding with you. What the fuck are you doing? Are you a fucking sick maniac? I don't know if you're kidding. What do you mean you're kidding? You're breaking my fucking balls? I'm fucking kidding with you. You fucking shoot the guy? He's dead. Good shot. What do you want from me? Good shot. So that's the scene in Goodfellas where uh, Joe Pesci shoots Spider, and uh, two days ago was Robert De Niro's birthday, and so um, I sent that to Parth, who's never seen Goodfellas all the way through. No, I've seen about two thirds. Uh, and oh, and your response? Oh, wait, we'll continue. I responded with a photo of me. Oh wow! Wow, uh, you're in a lot of backstory. Yeah, no, no, yeah, a photo of me from five years ago that my friend Aiden had sent to me of me with like in like really bright lighting and the, i think the phone had the fl- the camera was had flash on mm-hmm. and so i look really white yes the, in this the, photo. the 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 flash was reflecting off your supple brown skin and for whatever reason should i wait should when we do the instagram post should i put this up sure I be like here as as mentioned in the episode absolutely yeah white parth well caucasian parth to be respectful right so so trent responds with white parth question <laughs> mark and I respond, I know. And he goes, have you been white this whole time? And I say, it's shocking. And then I send, like, the eyes emoji, like, the looking left to right type eyes. Which are often used in a sort of, like, sexual sexual or sensual context. But in this, it was different. It was a friendly, friendly eyes, I think. How do you know it was different, Trent? We'll continue. So then, so then uh, <laughs> we, we don't talk because it's midnight after that. Mm-hmm. And then at 3.18 a.m., you send me, wow. And in the same text, you, you press enter and then go, so I watched Interstellar. I, I did a new paragraph to add to the drama. And then you responded right. with just one word um, at... So, <laughs> so, so... At 4.23. At 4.26... Yeah. No, 4.26 a.m. Trent, come on, got to get these time codes right. Um, at 4.26 a.m., I send my big, long response to his, you know, beautiful text. At 4.26 a.m., I respond with, yeah. And I happened to be awake when I received this, and I rolled over in bed. I thought, who, who like, what human being is functioning at this at this ungodly hour? And I look over, it was part. And when I woke, no, 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 when I woke up, I saw, because Trent, for some reason, has his read receipts on. Do I? Um, wow, I didn't even know that. <laughs> no, you do, which I always wonder, because every now and then I'll be like, hey, Trent, are you good at this time to record? And I can see that you've seen the text. And then I'll be like, why does he have his read receipts on if he's also going to purposefully avoid me? So that's part. The reason I've been uh, purposely ignoring you is because I thought my read receipts have been off for the past several years. So you right. you can imagine all of the wow. Um, all wow. This is on air. This is yeah. It, well, breaking news. Trent's, you, a, it? Trent's a bad friend and um, has difficulty scheduling sometimes. So, <laughs> so so then I wake up and I can see that I sent that text at four twenty six and you saw it at four twenty seven. It says read at four twenty seven. I'm like wow. He was up decided not to respond which is fine because i i had literally just gotten up for some reason in the middle of the night was it like to pee or a glass of water text no i just woke up randomly and then i think instinctively i reached for my phone to see what time it was even though i have an alarm clock saw the text responded with yeah because i figured hey i I saw the text i should respond Mm -hmm. because that's just your rule of friendship um and i i try i you know what happens when i see somebody's texted me 
I try to respond. And I know that's not how some people operate, but that's okay. So I thought... Everybody's different. I just thought there's no need to respond because when I felt my phone ring, I thought there was going, going to be a very detailed, like, critique or analysis or of the film or being like, I'm so glad you liked it, excited to chat tomorrow. And I thought, well, Parth's brain is clearly... Uh, operating somewhere between 5 and 10% of its full functionality. And there's no point in trying to continue on this conversation any longer. Because I no. I thought that it was one of those things where if I asked you about it this morning, like, hey, remember where I texted you last night? It would, being that it required like, su- such little mental capacity to send me the word yeah, that I thought you did this in a subconscious state. I thought you were dream you dream texted me only because i i remember i remember sending something i didn't remember what i remember sending something short but i didn't remember what it was and i know that this has gotten out of hand but a real i'm not crazy about the dream text because long story short i went to a party in high school and i arranged my and and trent was cool in high school people like trent in high school um and there was going to be some underage drinking going on and so I needed to arrange my sister to pick me up rather than my parents, um, you know, so we could pull off the perfect crime. And so, the, it, you know, the clock strikes 11, Trent's sophomore year curfew, and I call my sister and I say, come pick us up. And she said, and she answers the phone and she says, hey, Trent, I can't pick you up. I broke both my legs. Um, <laughs> and I was, you know, a little, you know a little bit impaired and so i thought okay that's cool um and then you know we went from there and then the next morning i saw my sister legs intact and i said yo did you just not want to drive us home and she said no i was having a dream where i broke both my legs and then i woke up to your phone call thought both my legs were still broken and then reported the facts isn't that crazy that that's a good story trend thanks um wh- well uh now that we've got that housekeeping you know what else way, is a good story the three-hour film by, by the three-hour Christopher Nolan film, Interstellar. Now you need to tell me what your plan is to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. All right, Parth, do you want to give the synopsis? Thanks, Trent. Uh, sure. A team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival. Parth and I have been discussing the possibility of changing the synopsis synopsis section to us trying to describe the film in ten words. But I looked at the synopsis this morning and I thought, this isn't going to be my first attempt. I, I, it's no. too long. It's too complicated. Let's let IMDb do some of the heavy lifting. I don't think a Christopher Nolan film is the one where we're going to try to like, yeah, let's let's summarize this ourselves. Do we want to try? Oh, let me try really quick. You you try. Ten words or less. Mac- <clears throat> were you going to say Macaulay Culkin? No. I, I, well, I, I was, my first two words are going to be Matthew McConaughey, but I think for the sake mm. of this exercise, I can start with McConaughey and everyone can understand sure. what's happening. McConaughey goes into Black Hole in a to save humanity and daughter. Ten words. Okay. I mean, that's like, that's a really, uh, I don't know, like, 
per- peripheral description because there's a lot there's sure. a lot more thematically happening here. Um, but tell me about the oh wait it's my responsibility to tell you about the box the box office and budget. Well, uh, good question, Parth. The budget is 165 million dollars, and the box office is 702 million dollars. It's a, made a pretty penny. Wait, huh? Also, wait. While I have you here, where does this fall in terms of Nolan's like box office draws? Uh, it's pretty big. I mean, he ha- his biggest grossing movie is still The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, did that, um, that followed break, by The Dark Knight? Did that break a billion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, The Dark Knight was, I think, the first superhero film to break $1 billion. It was one of a few films to break. I mean, now Marvel movies break a billion dollars, no sweat. But that was a big deal when The Dark Knight broke that. And then Dark Knight Rises made even more than The Dark Knight. Uh, So those two are his biggest. I'm sure, did Inception not make more money than than this? No, it did. It did. Uh, So those two are his biggest. Then Inception made uh, a little over $800 I believe. Then I think this is fourth. And what do you think is immediately following this, just for just for conversation's sake? Following this is probably Dunkirk, which I think made five hundred ish million. Oh, and Tenet's probably low on this list. Tenet is kind of low on this list. Um, it made about three hundred million dollars. So you know, you know, thanks it, it Warner, made... thanks Warner Media. Yeah. So after Dunkirk comes probably Batman Begins, and after that probably comes Tenet, and then after that all of his movies were like much smaller budgets yeah. so all right you know you want to give the production history sure so the premise for interstellar was conceived by producer linda obst and theoretical physicist kip thorne who collaborated on the film the 1997 film contact this garnered the interest of steven spielberg and film and the film began development in june 26th when spielberg and paramount pictures announced plans for a science fiction film based on an eight-page treatment by obst and thorne in March 2007, Jonathan Nolan was hired to write a screenplay. In 2009, Paramount required a new director for Interstellar because Spielberg moved his production studio DreamWorks from Paramount to Walt Disney Studios. So Jonathan Nolan recommended his brother Christopher Nolan, who joined in 2012. Wait, quick question. Is Jonathan... I mean, my understanding is that Jonathan Nolan had, had you know, historically been a screenwriter, but kind of only as an extension of Christopher Nolan. So is he his own... No, that's that's incorrect because so Memento was sort of everybody's big break because yeah. it was originally Jonathan Nolan's idea of a person that f- keeps forgetting their memory, but Jonathan Nolan has been a very successful person in the realm of TV. He's worked on uh shows like Person of Interest and he co-created and co- show runs Westworld on HBO. And he co-wrote uh he helped co-write a bunch of the Dark Knight movies. Um, he obviously co-wrote this, so he's he's successful in his own right. Well, the, the the way that the brothers, or at least in the Memento episode, we talked about this, how they would just like send their drafts back and forth to each other, like months apart. And I think, especially with like fam- family drama, it'd be really hard to collaborate creatively. Like imagine if you and Virage had to sure. make a 150-page screenplay together, and every week you needed to pick up all the pieces that, you know, Virage just doesn't know about, like, the first act or the second act break and or about, like, narrative structure. And don't you think that that would, like, come between you at the dinner table? I think you're being really demeaning towards Virage, and I don't appreciate you speaking ill of my family members. But other than that, yeah, I probably would find it difficult. Although I will say they weren't collaborating on the drafts together uh, for Memento. 
Chris Nolan was writing the screenplay on his own, and Jonathan Nolan was writing a short story version of that story on his own, and they just like saw each other's stuff, but they they weren't actually actively collaborating on The Dark Knight. Uh, Chris Nolan and David Goyer came up with the story, and then commissioned Jonathan Nolan to write the first initial draft, and then Christopher Nolan came in and did some rewrites on it. So it's it's not like working on it simultaneously. Viraj Marate will make an appearance on this show if and when we ever do Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Stay tuned. And maybe we have some fun stuff announced or planned for that, but... Maybe. Yeah, I don't, we'll, I, we'll, see, we'll see what I happens. I don't know. Big guests. Uh, Huge. Um, Alright, Trent, let me... Yeah, get on with let it. Let me barrel through this. Please. So, Christopher Nolan met with Kip Thorne, who was then attached as an executive producer to discuss the use of space-time in the story. In March 2013, he was confirmed to be directing and would be produced under his label Syncope and Linda Ops Productions. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter reported that Nolan was going to earn a salary of $20 million with 20% of the total gross, so well done, Nolan. Warner Brothers gave Paramount rights to co-finance Warner Brothers gave Paramount rights to co-finance the next Friday the 13th film in exchange for a stake in Interstellar, and Legendary Pictures made a deal with Warner Brothers to finance about 25% of Interstellar in lieu of financing Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. Good stuff. The Dust Bowl phenomenon of the 1930s, as documented by Ken Burns in The Dust Bowl, which was made in 2012, was an inspiration for the blight that was portrayed in the movie. Nolan became interested in casting Matthew McConaughey after watching him in an early cut of the 2012 film Mud. Nolan filmed the movie on 35mm film in the Panavision anamorphic format and IMAX 70mm photography. Cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytma was hired in lieu of Wally Pfister, who had been Nolan's cinematographer since Memento because he was making his directorial debut uh, on Transcendence, which starred Don- Johnny Depp. Has Van, has Van Hoytma worked on everything since? Yeah, he did Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenet. Mm. So more IMAX cameras were used for Interstellar than for any of Nolan's previous films, which makes this the narrative film with the most amount of IMAX footage. Also, um, this would come up later in the fun fact section, but as of 2014, this was the longest IMAX film ever made. So Van Hoytma retooled an IMAX camera to be handheld for shooting interior scenes, which is something that was a big uh, technological improvement uh, because Chris Nolan likes doing handheld. And you can't do that with IMAX cameras because they're big and heavy until you get Van Hoytma. Hoyt Van Hoytma to do it. Also, what a fucking awesome name. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the crew spent two weeks shooting in Iceland, where Nolan had previously filmed for Batman Begins. Uh, Composer Hans Zimmer, Nolan's longtime collaborator, uh, returned. And in this scenario, instead of receiving a script, Nolan gave Zimmer a single-page document that told the story of a father leaving his child for work. And Zimmer started you know, orchestrating a bunch of new stuff. They used an organ and they decided to go against the sort of recording processes that they'd used in previous films. And Zimmer conducted 45 scoring sessions for Interstellar, which was three times more than he had ever recorded for Inception. So Parth, I saw a video of Jessica Chastain this morning talking about Christopher Nolan, and she said that all of the scripts that he sends to the actors come on like bright red paper. And I was wondering if you know why that is. I have no idea why that is. Do you just think it might be? He's notoriously incredibly secretive, Mm -hmm. so there might be some aspect of that because he he doesn't really like to send scripts. He really likes to 
bring people into his house and then they go into a room and read it or something like that or he'll go to their house and they'll read it he doesn't really like to send it out i know that so maybe it's something related to that but i don't know yeah in that specific case what that is but that's Trent, that's kind of a fun fact yes that you just told cool me. um so uh speaking of fun ah. facts early in pre-production scotty pippen because you just gave me an assist does that make yeah, does that make yeah. me michael jordan fuck cool cool all right. Early in pre-production, Dr. Kip Thorne laid, a, laid two guidelines to strictly follow. Nothing would violate established physical laws and that all the wild speculations would spring from science and not from the creative mind of a screenwriter, writer, producer, or director, Christopher Nolan. Uh, Nolan accepted these terms as long as they did not get in the way of making the movie. That did not prevent clashes, though. At one point, Thorne spent two weeks talking Nolan out of my idea about traveling faster than light. It's apparently, can't do that. Um, did you take physics in high school, Parth? Did you have a firm grasp of all this black hole stuff that was going on? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at quantum physics. Cool. No, just checking in. Me too. According to Dr. Kip Thorne, the largest degree of creative license in this movie were the clouds of the ice planet. As ice, and as ice structures, these probably could not be that strong. Um, the giant dust clouds were created on location using large fans to blow cellulose-based synthetic dust through the air. Anne Hathaway suffered from hypothermia while fim- filming in Iceland due to the fact that her astronaut suit was open while filming scenes in the icy water. The wormhole was placed near Saturn as a reference to 2001 A Space Odyssey because Stanley Kubrick originally planned for part of that movie to take place at Saturn. Unfortunately, as visual effects technology wasn't able to make Saturn Springs at that time, he changed it to Z- Jupiter. And Parth, I'm sure, as a person um, who's alive and gone to uh, a year worth of film school, you can see... Um, do you think there's... This movie takes any influence from 2001 A Space Odyssey, or no? about that but now that you mention it yeah i can kind of see it um dr kip thorne collaborated with the visual effects supervisor to create black hole thorne's work helped create new cgi software programs to create accurate computer simulations of these phenomena um because i don't really think we know what a black hole looks like so no but this is this is as of now the most accurate representation uh, representation because normally in movies they do it as a flat thing you go through and this movie goes out of its way to explain that misconception yeah we'll get into and it kind of steals its explanation from a movie called event horizon in the trivia on imdb it said that the circle or folding the paper and you know poking the pencil through it which is every you know physics teacher's way to explain the wormhole was stolen directly from event horizon um the majority of the shots 
of the robot TARS were not computer-generated. Gen Rather, TARS was a practical puppet controlled and voiced on set by Bill Irwin, who was then digitally erased from the movie. Irwin also puppeteered the robot case, but in that instance had his voice dubbed over by another actor named Josh Stewart. Um, Dr. Kip Thorne won a scientific bet against Stephen Hawking upon the astrophysics theory that underlies this movie. As a consequence, Hawking had to subscribe to Penthouse Magazine for a year. This fa famous bet was depicted in the film The Theory of Everything. Um, final fun fact. The hypersleep chambers place the astronauts' bodies in a cold liquid. As, as seen after they wake up, when they are covered in blankets or thermal blankets, this is likely a practical reference to study, studies that have shown a state of hibernation can be achieved in the human body by causing hypothermia. This technology has been used to treat brain damage and has been proposed as a viable means of keeping people with severe injuries alive after accidents while they are transported to medical facilities where they are treated by specialists. Uh, I know every space movie has a sort of hibernation pod, and I know that they're all just a chamber that, you know, hasn't you know, that shuts over you, but something about this one, not believable, but I mean, clearly there's some science to defend it. And more so than the alien pods, where it's just like a bed with a slap of glass over it, and you know. Uh, wait, yeah. uh, Parth, rather than me continuing talking, um, do you want to read these really lengthy one-star reviews? Yeah, Trent decided this wasn't a long enough episode, so he was like, hey, let's put a one-star review with multiple paragraphs in it. Uh, so our first one is by Clay H. on January 3rd, 2019, and it has the title, Because I Love My Children, I'm Deleting This Movie. Parth, I really think you're going to get a kick out of this, though. I really think it's going to be worth our right, time. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to barrel through this. When I first watched Interstellar in the theater, I loved it because I'm a, I'm a bit of a physics geek. I loved the dedication to getting the astrophysics right, and I was blind to the other messages being portrayed by the movie. Fast forward to sharing this with my children, and I have a very different perspective. Most of the movie is suspenseful and asks tough, and asks tough questions of survival, but the end scene portraying those who survived shows the result of an unspoken genocide. In the end scene, we see a space station populated by white people happily farming and playing baseball, and not one person of color represented. That there is not a single person of color present implies that there implies that only people who are white made it into the space station and everyone else was left behind on a doomed planet. Thus the unspoken genocide. I realize some people might say I'm being too sensitive because they see no problem, telling me, after all, it's just a movie and you don't have to make everything about race. With those people, I'd have a discussion of how movies are meant to spark specifics. You got this. With those people... With those people, I'd have a discussion of how movies are meant to spark scientific curiosity and inspire an adventurous spirit, yet only portray success for white people, leave those who are not white with a sense of being left out. People pick up on these subtle messages, even if only on a subconscious level, as the movie is saying, see this future, see the people in it, it's not for you. That is the horrible power of these messages. These messages are subtle and shout louder than words ever could. These messages are felt by children in places parents can't reach. I'm deleting this movie from my purchased videos because I can do better than showing my children these kinds of messages. This is really interesting for a few reasons. One is, sure, you can make a case that Christopher Nolan could do a better job trying to get some people of color in his movies, and that's a fair message. And it is true that, you know, mess the images that you show in movies they reverberate and they leave messages i don't think they were talking about a happy white paradise where all non-white people were genocided no I, I i thought wait you only see very few scenes in the future and the only people you see are 
essentially people who are related. It's like Matthew McConaughey's daughter. And then it's like her whole big white family is surrounded around because they're all related to Matthew McConaughey, a famous Caucasian. And then, you know, uh, like there's not too much in the future place. Like there's only so many oppor- there's so much opportunity to see a minority. Next one uh, is by someone by someone named JP. Why do people make mo- nice name? Why do people make movie so complicated? Not movies, movie. Watch this movie by seeing the reviews and five star ratings. I usually watch movie to keep relaxed and keep myself away from stressful life for a couple hours. This movie disappointed me from that angle. It's a bit complicated and needs your full attention throughout the story. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but may fail to meet your expectations if you're looking to be simply entertained. Parth, I'm going to give you your birthday present early, and I'm going to read this last review because it's kind of long. Is that okay? Happy birthday. Uh, This last one is by Philip Allen, labeled What a Chore. One fact is glaringly apparent. The first hour and a half could easily have been squeezed into 15 to 20 minutes of screen time. Um, wow, this person needs to get into the editing business because it seems like they could really streamline a lot of projects. Yeah, they should, they should get a job with John Lee. Uh, oh, nice. Uh, listen to our last episode. Um, all of the most important concepts could have been stated within that time. Three hours was not necessary at all. By the time the film hit the two-hour mark, I was in physical pain sitting through this thing. The last hour is about the only thing halfway worth watching, kind of, sort of, maybe. I just don't understand how filmmakers like this manage to get money out of people to make turkeys like this. I suspect that by the time the producers finally understood what Nolan had done with their money, it was way too late to salvage anything. I mean, seriously, how much of a self-indulgent egotist must a movie maker be to crank out crap like this? What a sentence. Final paragraph. There is one ruler by which... This is really the fucking kicker. There is one ruler by which I measure any film before delving into a deeper analysis. Is it boring? Does it commit the unforgivable crime of being boring? This does not mean that the film can be interesting for half its running time and excuses its other half from being boring. No, none of it can be boring. This is because every second of running time is important. Every second counts, and just 60 seconds of boredom can translate into an eternity of suffering for the audience. Because film time does not run the same as real time, it runs on its own, quote, clock. Therefore, every single second of screen time must be interesting in some profound, important way. Every single second. And filmmakers who fail to understand or respect the odd fact of film will fail eventually. They might get away with a film or two of being a boring time waster, but eventually the public will catch on. I only hope this happens to Nolan. He's been turning out boring films for some time now, and one day the public will wake up to this fact. Parth, uh, any thoughts? Wow. Yeah, no. Uh, I- I'm- imagine every second needing to be interesting and profound and important. I, I don't even know where to... Yeah, where to, okay. where to begin. I mean, the movies he churned out before this were, just before this, were in order <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises, Inception, The Dark Knight. N- but par- and so, like, what, what boring movies is he talking about that he's churning out? What, what is he talking about, like, every single second needs to be important because movies run on their own clock? What does that even mean? Uh, Parth, I think that you're just a sheep, and one day, um, the public is gonna wake up. That's, yeah, that, you, you, actually, you bring up a good point. Um, let's move on to our next section. Um, the main section. The 
part yeah. of the podcast 42 minutes in where we start to talk about the film. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Yeah. And Parth, with I that be- that was. with that it kind of sounded like a Yoshi sound effect and if you know who Yoshi. You- yeah, I'll yeah. I'll add in I mean that one was much better, but I'll add in a Yoshi sound effect for reference. Let me ask you, what's working? Most of it. I think um, this is one of I this is one of my more favored Nolan movies, and you know I love uh, I love my Nolan. Yeah, if you li- if you um, listen to our Sweet Sixteen director draft extravaganza, you'll hear Parth defend Christopher Nolan to my dying breath. Yes, or to his dying breath, I guess. But whichever of you um, dies first. No, I think that this movie really proved a lot of people about proved a lot of people wrong about nolan a lot of people saw nolan as somebody incapable of telling stories of human emotion um they saw him as somebody that only does these cold labyrinth like plots and i really i mean i disagreed with that even before interstellar came out i think the dark knight trilogy is a great human story i think memento for all of its labyrinthness is a great human story i think the prestige is really really great at telling a story of two characters but interstellar is his most obviously emotional um soap opera like dramatic movie and it's the one that's most obviously about family uh i know nolan has four kids i know he has a daughter so i'm sure to some extent this was much more personal for him as we found out from john lee the original script was about a man leaving his son and this and he when nolan when christopher nolan came on he changed the story so that it was a man leaving his daughter so i'm sure this for nolan himself is also more personal and i think you can feel that yeah parth can i say something controversial to stimulate some conversation are you gonna say that you don't care about the second son oh um you mean Timothy Chalamet? Or, like, the only other son, but yeah. Uh, we'll get to that later, but what I was going to say is that this is the second best Nolan movie, Behind the Dark Knight. That is a... I can I can respect that. Because um, I group this in I'm... conceptually with Inception, and I like this way more than I like Inception. And I like this really? more than Tenet, and I like this more than Dunkirk. Interesting. I mean, do you? I don't think. Do you disagree? I think uh, it's difficult to sort of rank his movies for the reason that a lot of people like to think that his movies are exactly the same, and I would argue they're very same in tone, but they're pretty different in terms of what story they're telling. They're never really the same thing, which is part of why I really love him, but um, or his movies. This movie caught me by surprise because if you listen to our Tenet episode or our Memento episode, damn, we really get around. But. Um, I made complaints about both of those with the characters and the dialogue, 
and that there wasn't much like human connection going on and there's so much theme happening here and even Trent's icy cold heart was melted was defrosted by all this family stuff yeah i was i was shocked to hear how much you like this movie because i i mean every single time we mentioned that you were gonna have to watch this movie you would ask me am i gonna like it and i was like i think you'll like it but i think you're gonna think it's boring i think you're gonna think it's too long um well and and speaking of that i said off uh, off mic whenever a movie is over two hours and 15 minutes long our first complaint is this movie should be 15 minutes shorter and this movie is almost three hours long and it kind of earns the runtime yeah i i I mean i think i don't want to get into what's not working too early or anything i think i think it does have a little bit of a pacing problem about two-thirds of the way in i think it once once you get to dr man it sort of reaches a point where it's uh stagnating a little bit but i think it more than makes up for it with the preceding you know two hours and the succeeding hours you know i think it's see the only time the film i was worried about pacing i would say would be in the first act um really the first act is one of my favorite first acts because i think it does it has one of the more interesting depictions of the future that i've seen i think that well watching the first act for the first time i was like they're talking about ghosts there's they're talking about aliens like we're 40 minutes in we're not even in space yet and i was like there's so many directions that they could take this movie and it could end up being stupid because i'm like they're open there's either gonna be a lot of loose ends or they're gonna try to arbitrarily tie this all together and it's not going to work and the reason trent was proven wrong and damn they took all that ghost shit from the first act and they like involved in the third act that's hollywood baby that's called paying off the audience yeah it makes us feel like you like us like you want us to be in on the joke people people criticize the movie because they say that people don't like the third act of this movie and and I'm kind what's, of always shocked their, by what's that. What's their argument? On paper, the more the further in space you are, and the more survival conflict there would be, the more entertaining. And that the third act is where most of that's happening. Well, they don't like the black hole stuff. They mm. think, and the, and that's the, I don't know. Black, I feel the like black that's hole, the movie to me. Yeah, I, I agree that that's the movie. The black hole stuff does go off the deep end a little bit, and I think if you've come this far now is not a time to start fact checking um but suspend your disbelief and have a good time people okay here's one of the reasons that i love the movie so much i love when art can push science and things like that forward like a movie like jurassic park Mm. pushed archaeology and it pushed uh paleontology it pushed all of that it you know scientists had to work with computer artists had to work with models model makers and all these sorts of prosthetic people or whatever to how do we recreate a dinosaur and this movie because it's sort of based out of scientific discovery is is the same thing it's it you know i think it's amazing that this movie was able to you know kip thorne was a physicist and was like okay i'm gonna use this 165 million dollar budget uh, I'm going to take your big, fancy Hollywood computers, plug in my theoretical equations in, see what pops up. Oh, I guess that's what a black hole looks like. And then that creates two scientific papers. You know what I mean? So I think it's amazing when a movie can do that. And I think that this movie, which I think 
as much as I would be interested in seeing Spielberg's version of this movie, um, I can kind of see what it would be, and it'd be more schmaltzy, and I think it would also be um, less scientifically accurate. I was going to use the word cheese ball. As much as I love Steven Spielberg, um, I think th- we would get a lot more, like, I think this movie's plenty heartfelt, and the Spielberg version is way more heartfelt. Too much so. Yeah. And I think part of what's interesting about this movie is it's such a different depiction of space travel than what you normally see. Because there's really, in movies, the, the language of space travel is, is based down to two things. You've got your hyper-accurate stuff that's like Apollo 13, and it's actually about real space travel. Yeah. Or you've got your Star Treks or your Star Wars or whatever, where it looks... You know, it looks good. It's a it's a Hollywood movie, but it's clearly inaccurate. It's clearly not making sense. There's sound in space or whatever. And this is one of the first movies where it's taking these incredibly high concept, absolutely ridiculous ideas like interstellar travel, like, you know, going into a black hole, you know, all of these things that if done by if done by another director would be done in a much more maximalist you know, you, I can see the Michael Bay version of this, and it's it's not great, you know? This, with Nolan's sort of insistence on everything looking real, on everything feeling real, um, you know, there were zero green screens used in this movie. There were... There's a few scenes where there's many computer-generated effects, but everything inside of the spacecraft is all... When, when they're shooting inside the spacecraft, that's what, you, that's what the actors were seeing, because he was outside of the space, spacecraft projecting uh you know stuff that they'd made in cg for outside the a- space for the actors to interact with yeah and i think all of that creates a completely different experience i think it makes everything feel much more grounded much more realistic and i don't know it's just a completely different experience than anything i think than than most other movies will ever give you i mean a personal flaw of mine is that like, the reason I haven't watched Lord of the Rings or I have trouble getting into fantasy is because I have a hard time signing up emotionally to be invested in things that don't take place on Earth. And this movie taking place in a, uh, like, a, a future, like, climate-ridden, you know, apocalyptic version, but it's not like everyone's, like, eating each other. It's, like, the perfect amount of grim. Um, yeah. but also it's like grim in the way that's like, I could see us living under similar circumstances in the next 50 yeah. to 60 years. And, um, as hard of a pill as that is to swallow, it makes it so poignant because something like this, maybe forgetting the black holes, but people are clearly trying to colonize other planets and, um, it's, it, it, this could be a feasible future this could be a feasible future and that makes me mean more to me now because watching inception i'm like cool but like this isn't gonna apply to me at any point Hmm. i i don't i don't personally watch movies like that but i can definitely understand how this is more appealing to you if you do something about because I, i i i think in the way that switching switching gears really quick in the way that i made a complaint about like tenant or inception not explaining the rules and oftentimes intentionally so i think this movie goes out of its way to explain like the basic mechanics and even if it doesn't 
like actually makes sense like in the moment it it's really uh it's like really cinematic and it, at least for what's happening on screen it gives you a base understanding it's like we've forgotten who we are at home explorers pioneers not caretakers when i was a kid it felt like they made something new every day some gadget or idea like every day was christmas but six billion people just try to imagine that and every last one of them trying to have it all i think you've got to rewatch inception because i know you haven't rewatched that movie in a long time but i agree i mean i think the movie goes a little bit too far on the explaining sometimes i think like towards the end there's a lot of characters explaining exactly what's happening and i think sometimes you don't really need that but i i don't know i don't fucking care i it's it what movie shows the stuff that this movie does you know in the way that this movie does oh wait as interestingly wait part do wait you don't want to talk about the space cgi do you uh i would love to talk about the space cgi oh wait and should we mention how fucking dope it is or no Uh, yeah that, that that'd be a cool thing to bring up so um i think all the space cgi is awesome and i have one exception it's that especially on the water planet and after that Mm. i was because they're in the ship for a a lot of the film and they're Mm. showing whenever they show the ship like interacting with like the water like it, they show a lot of angles of just like the windows of the ship going through all these different sure. elements and they don't have and I know it's because they're using like models or miniatures and I think that they look great um, but they very rarely show like a wide shot of the ship and I know that that's what you'd come to expect but like you could cut you could make a super cut of 10 minutes of this movie of it just like when uh, the windows of the front of the ship being hit by waves is that the complaint that's the full complaint yes okay well i i uh i get what you're saying but i would argue this uh people like to say that chris nolan sometimes is kind of just like a functional director he's not like doing crazy things with the camera and i think over the course of the of his career I would argue that that's one of his biggest assets is that he's someone that's very, very uh, disciplined. He he has cert- very specific rules of what he's going to do and what he's not going to do. He's not going to do crazy long takes. He's going to do he's going to shoot with a lot of coverage, as we learned from Stephen Tobolowsky. Mm. Um, he's going to uh, you know be be make sure that he has all the angles he needs to get it in the edit. And the other thing he's not going to do is when he's working with CG elements, he's never going to to do something a camera can't do. Mm. And what I mean by that is a lot of people, when they go into space, if, I mean, just look at like J.J. Abrams, you know, Star Trek movies or Force Awakens or even Ryan Johnson in The Last Jedi. The camera, a lot of the times, is doing these moves that a camera physically cannot do. Whereas, um, Nolan, when he does that, I think he's kind of acutely aware of the fact that we have come to understand, like, okay, and this is the computer part of the movie, you know, where uh, this is a fake camera. Even if we're not literally thinking that, we can kind of tell, like, yeah, I mean, I know that's not real. It's It looks good, but it's not real. And I think he, by not giving us those wide shots, by not giving us some, like, crazy, 
you know, whatever, by keeping the camera still and keeping the camera on, you know, on the ship, it, it keeps you grounded and it keeps it, you know, looking good. And I think I think a defensive Nolan on the whole. Cooper, what are you doing? Docking. Endurance rotation is 67, 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match our spin with the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No, it's necessary. I think pe- Marvel has kind of ruined the way people look at how movies should be made, I think, of this, like, level. Because I think people are like, well, it wasn't funny. It was, it wasn't, it, there wasn't comedy. And I think this movie is plenty funny. There's plenty of stuff that's, like, pretty funny in it. Um, but it plays, it, nobody looks at Tarzan and is like, haha, look at this guy. You know, there's no, like, Joss Whedon-ish wink-to-the-camera type humor. And, you know, Joss Whedon is a dirtbag. But that humor has its place. It's fun. I like The Avengers, too. But it's also fun to see something that plays something completely straight. Oh, you, you, know, like, the Aven- you like The Avengers 2, Age of Ultron? That's interesting. Gotcha. I also like Avengers 2. But here's the main reason why I love the movie is i think it has this undertone of of a spirit of like pushing forward Mm. and um discovery and i think nolan if you look at his movies he's always looking to see the best in people uh you know fucked up as the dark knight can be part of the pivotal part part of its pivotal ending a pivotal part of its ending is people choosing not to blow each other up Mm -hmm. even when they're given all the incentive to do so you know in this movie you see that you know it's it's what you said it's a good amount of sort of sentimentalism with you know cynicism Mm. where the future has been fucked up we have completely run the planet dry but despite that we are able to progress past our own issues and go out into space and you know discover these things and rebuild as a society and people kind of don't like the ending because they think it wraps things up too neatly at the end um and i would argue if that is the movie you know the the movie is about how we can do that that is a possibility that humanity is not doomed i feel like a lot of the dialogue scenes like even when they weren't like in a way that shouldn't be subtle in a very nuanced way they they found a way wow to casually discuss like the themes of like survival time love and like what it means to be human during every conversation and yeah um it shouldn't work but when matt damon is like monologuing about like why why we didn't send robots off for space exploration is because they don't have what humans best quality is well it was the ability to improvise based off their will to live and that yeah. robots could never have that and that's what makes humans so powerful and also Anne Hathaway's thing about like if love has guided me through time and space then it is as powerful as gravity or time and sure yeah um i don't know in a in a in a cheesy, emotional, I've had a long week kind of way, I, like, really needed that. Yeah, and again, it's weird to me that this is what people don't like about the movie. Because I think 
all the stuff that I have issues with the movie are sort of plot mechanic type things. Like I think there's a little bit too much explanation. I think certain things could have been condensed a little bit. But I have, I really don't have a problem with the sort of unabashed emotionalness of the movie. You know, the whole scene of, you know, everybody kind of mentions the seeing the messages through the years. Scene. I was just gonna bring. The, I was just gonna bring this up. Like, as someone who hasn't seen the movie, when you see when they showed like Matthew McConaughey being nominated for best actor, that's the clip they show. Yeah. Oh, bo- both and, because the lighting is beautiful and his face is very emotive. Emotive. There you go. Yeah, and and I mean, th- there's. There's maybe a few too many scenes of people crying, but I really, I don't give a fuck. It's, it's really heart-wrenching. You know, at the end when he's in the black hole and he's seeing through this, you know, three-dimensional construct or, or four-dimensional construct where he can see time in a three-dimensional construct. Like, that's cr- when he's, like, begging his daughter to stay. Mm-hmm. That's fucking heart, you know, like that gets me. I don't, and I don't care about the fact that it creates a time loop and it doesn't a hundred percent make sense. And he's in a black hole because I think the movie has sort of built up enough credibility to where you go. I don't know. Maybe, so, maybe this could happen. Okay. So I'm with you, but my only beef comes in that scene where he's knocking the books down and, you know, trying to articulate yeah. in Morse code to stay because he knows he, he, by by this point, he knows, like, oh, I was the one who did that before, and it clearly didn't cause me to stay. So what is the point in me doing it now? The thing is, he doesn't—I don't think he's remembering it. I don't—because he didn't see—like, when the books fall out, he doesn't see that. His daughter sees yeah, that. Yeah, but his daughter said, well, there, there was an additional message. message. It spelt out the word stay, and I'm telling you this, and you don't believe me. And then— he sees his daughter and he starts spelling a word and he shouldn't and he doesn't make the connection of I see how the story ends I finish the word and then I ignore her because I I, I understand he needs to make it happen in the future because he already made it happen in the past I I get it uh you know I don't know I think I think it works as a moment I was willing to look past it because it worked as a moment and because I thought in the first act what's all this ghost mumbo jumbo and then they made it worth our while. The only thing I don't really get is how Jessica Chastain, as an adult, figured it out that he was her ghost. That scene because it doesn't is cross cutting at such a rate that I think is meant to keep you from uh, understanding that it doesn't really make much sense. Yes, because Jessica Chastain is just like standing in her childhood bedroom. And she figures everything out at once. Yeah, that's the one thing that I think is like, eh, there was no way for her to, like, there was nothing you could do to make that make a little bit more sense. But again... I'm, I'm afraid it, we've transitioned inadvertently into the not working category. Um, yeah. And I guess while we're here, I'll say the... A, a big plot point in the second half is like, oh, if only we could get inside a black hole... And then, like, go through the horizon, whatever that is. Then we can just like take a picture, send it to Earth. Well, we would have the we would have the information that we would need to send to Earth to f- get the second half of the gravity equation that they need. Yeah, no, and I, I understand that, but it's the I, it's the black. The, they send the robots to the black hole. They're like, yeah, just you know, 
look around, see what it's all about, and then that'll just solve all of our problems instantly, and it kind of does. Well, I mean, they've set it up that that, that they couldn't get that information because someone would need to go into a black hole, and they're not prepared to do that. So I think think it's fine because they've set it up to be that way. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing... The only piece of, like, explanation that I think that, like, we really didn't need was when they're, like, when they're in the black hole and they're talking about, it's love, Tars, love. I I could do this because of love. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, we don't, he doesn't need to say, I get it. I don't need the the monologue. But, again, it's well acted, so it's okay. The only thing that I think. I think they said the, I mean, Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey had a nice joke of the, oh, I'll tell the truth 90% of the time thing. And they had a nice repartee with the robot, too, about this. And I, you know, it, I've watched enough movies at the point where in the beginning when they say that, I knew, okay, down the line, there's going to be a pivotal moment, and they he's going to make a joke about how he this is the remaining 10%. And, do yeah. re- oh, the last Anne Hathaway movie. But it gets, it got me. <laughs> yeah, no, it gets me. The last Anne Hathaway movie we did was locked down i love anne hathaway by the way and do you remember how i thought you say you loved locked down no and i was so shocked um but do you remember how in locked down both the characters kept talking about like the moment and they just like brought it up like one too many times mm-hmm. i think this movie does that, was that was... with this with the 90 yeah. percent thing and i know we're getting we're getting trivial especially because we recently did away with the nitpick section and now we just get our nitpicks out of the way in the not working section ranger two Prepare to detect. What? No, no. Cooper. Three. Cooper, what are you doing? Prepare to turn Uh, the the only one big structural thing I think this movie doesn't really need is the second sibling. Uh, I don't know if that's a remnant of the original Jonathan Nolan draft gl- or what. I'm glad you bring this up. Uh, Go ahead, please. I think it can be represented um, in him saying goodbye to both of his children when he's leaving space for an indefinite period of time. And he goes up to his daughter's room, and he's like, hey, I love you so much. Here's a here's a watch to remember me by. Here's, like, a valuable explanation, uh, you know, probably a metaphor about how I'm here for you. And then he goes out to his son, also his child, and he's like, hey, champ, watch the farm. Oh, P.S. <laughs> You'll be all right. Yeah, P.S. You can borrow my truck. Aha. Uh-huh. See ya. It's yours. And, um... And I, I know that, like, there's some convenience in getting, like, the girl—getting uh, Murph. Oh, also, they say the word Murph a thousand fucking times in this movie. And yes. um, good for them, but people don't say each other's names that often when they're talking to each other. I think—I don't know—again, I feel like this might just be, like, a remnant of there was a son. But then I don't know why they wouldn't just change it to a daughter— uh, and like leave out a second i don't know why you would keep the son and then add a daughter why not just change the gender it doesn't make sense to or, me so i i'm assuming that's not the reason i think nolan again i think with 
the Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar are a little bit overwritten mm-hmm. in that there's 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 a few too many plot mechanics going on, uh, and I think that's one of them. So I think maybe he was in his overwriting phase, but um, it's kind of weird because the story is all about getting back to Murph and getting back to his daughter, and his he goes back the 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 one of the pivotal moments at the ending is him seeing his daughter who is now older than he is and he doesn't give a fuck about his son he doesn't even ask about it yeah the son so the like, son's definitely dead i don't know why you can't just do away with the character because other than at the end she comes to her childhood home and burns the farm which other than that i i thought i'm i thought that was her saying all right if you won't leave the farm to save your kids lungs then i'm gonna burn it down so you have nothing that you can do here yeah uh, and but but then it kind of isn't that because then he comes back and he like should be all angry and then she's just like don't worry dad is a ghost and he's he well, and he's still alive I think, I, and then you know it cuts away I think part of what it I think part of what it is is that she burns the farm as a dist- because he says he tells her to leave the yeah, house yeah it was as a distraction so she burns so, so, so it's used as a distraction so that he goes there to deal with it so that she can go back to the house because she thinks that something might have been left there yeah and so the whole thing. I mean, he doesn't hug her back. But again, it's a weird thing. You don't, you didn't need the farm burning down scene. It didn't, it wasn't really pivotal to anything because it ends up being fine. It doesn't affect anything later on. So you really could have removed the sun. I don't know if you've seen the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds. I have. Are you talking about it's how? It's exactly the same situation. How that movie has two kids and the daughter's the important one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which again, I have no issue with that. Just take out the other kid. It's like weirdly. It's like why is this other kid there if they're not the important one? It sounds like a weird. But they're not feeling. But they're that. not off to the side enough. It's like no. They're oddly in the middle. Um, where where? All right. I have two more things, and then we can get out of here. All right. Get to our gauntlet and get out. Yeah. The first thing is, um, I like. Well, I, I guess something I want to compliment is the first act break and the second act break, which I guess would kind of sort of be when you find out that the Michael Caine's character was lying about plan A, which is probably more mm-hmm. around the halfway point. And then the two-third break would be when, I guess, you find out that Matt Damon is trying to betray them. And right. I like both of those things, and both of them... Like, rarely when I'm watching a movie d- these days do I, like, you know, rise out of my seat a little bit. I'm like, oh, shit. They, they're they doing something here. And I did it twice during this movie. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. Like, I understand Matt Damon. He's like, yeah, I haven't seen another human face in a really long time. And you won't believe the things that that, that will make you. Like, it, it was his whole reason for going the survival instinct spiel. But why is he, why does he try to kill mcconaughey because he wants to go home too and that's what matt damon wants well the, he doesn't they, he doesn't want them to go exploring the other planets because does matt damon just want to go home yeah that's the whole thing is that he has been um he has been out there for so long and he lost complete hope he completely lost hope so his survival instinct kicks in and he's like i don't give a fuck we're all doomed anyway. We can't live on these planets, so I just want to travel home. So he kills him, or he sets him up to die because he thinks that's his way back. So he's, like, so desperate that he's willing to do anything. Uh, so I think that's the reason why he does that. 
I, again, like, it's not like a malicious, I mean, obviously he's trying to kill him, but like, it's not a malicious intent, no, but it, necessarily. It's like, so like, oddly, horrifically beautiful when he's like, yeah. I thought I could watch you die, but I, but like, I just listen to my voice. Like, I'm supporting you through this, but it's too horrible. Like, I, like, he clearly had no malice against him, but he was like, it's me, yeah. it's me against <laughs> you. And I chose me. You're feeling it, aren't you? Your survival instinct. That's what drove me. It's what drives all of us. And it's what's gonna save us. Because I'm gonna save all of us. For you, Cooper. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't watch you go through this. I'm sorry. I thought I could, but I can't. I'm here. I'm here for you. Just listen to my voice, Cooper. I'm right here. Again, which is another thing I like, is that it's like, oh yeah, everybody in the movie is really trying to do the right thing and get Pat. And it's like, no, Matt Damon's, you know, he's willing to kill people. He's I know, his name is Dr. Man. He's supposed to represent humanity. You know, that's not very subtle. And it's like, oh no, some of humanity is willing to eat each other apart to stay alive. But that doesn't mean that you should give up, you know. Wait, I have one more. Well, okay, I have one more good thing and one more bad thing. The good thing Please. is that in this film, they're like, all right, we got to go to X amount of planets. And I think this film does what the early Star Wars films do really well in making each planet, like, completely unique. Distinctive. For one distinct yeah. reason. Even if it's like, you have a water planet, and then you have a snowy planet, and then you have a rock planet. And then, you know, in Star Wars, you have a desert planet and a snow planet and a tree planet or whatever. But just in terms of, like, understanding or, like, feeling, like, immersed or, like, some atmosphere. I don't know. Just it really helps yeah. with the world building. Yeah, definitely. And the bad thing, not even bad, but as deep as the bench of this movie is, because basically everyone on screen is a household name. Um, and it's, like, crazy. Um, Topher Grace takes me straight out of this movie. I don't have... I like Topher Grace. I, like, I feel like people I, don't... I like Topher Grace, too. In Black Klansman, he's great, but his mustache is hiding his Topher Grace-ness. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so... Is it time? It will be in a second. Does the end of this movie... Is that him going for Anne Hathaway? I think so. Okay. I think it's it's supposed to be him going for Anne Hathaway and him just, in general, exploring... Because um, that's who he was meant to be, yeah. kind of thing. Uh, you want to move on to the rating gauntlet? Yeah, Trent, how about you go first? I mean, mine's more... Or should I go first, because I'm more predictable? You go first. Okay. Uh, in terms of rewatchability, I watched this movie... You know, it's not like a Batman movie. It's, it's a little bit more... You have to be really ready to watch this movie, I think. Um, but I will... I, I, I rewatch it a relatively normal amount i guess so yes and i would definitely recommend the movie um out of 10 mm. eight seems too low for me right but nine seems is nine right you tell me fuck it nine nine out of ten good for you well yes i'd recommend it because now it's my second favorite christopher nolan movie the only one above it being the dark knight which is you know pretty close to perfect will i rewatch it here's the funny thing like not anytime soon 
Um, I think. That, but do you see yourself at some point being like it yes. not? Yeah, and, do you and, see yourself rewatching it at some point? And yes, in the way that once you, if you watch Inception the first time, you're like, okay, I'll probably get more out of this the second time. Like, rarely do I find. Well, I guess I can sum it up in this way. Last night, I started watching the movie after midnight, and since it's a three-hour-long movie, I had every intention of watching half of it and going to bed. We we actually made a plan. We were gonna record this later because, and then I pushed the schedule up, and I said, watch the half of the movie tonight and half of the movie tomorrow morning, and we'll record in the afternoon. Yes, and the fact that I was so gripped by the story that I pried my eyes open until 3.30 a.m. just because I really was fucking on board. And I was like, I don't want to wait to find out how it ends. Like, I, you know, you've got my mm. fucking attention, and I feel like this is meant to be done in one sitting. I wish I saw it on a big-ass movie screen, but um, my laptop will have to do for now. Yeah, you can come over one day. And just for interesting sake, I was going to give it a nine, but after you gave it a nine, I'll give it an eight five just for diversity. What? Give it give it an eight seven. Eight point seven. Wow. Okay. Um, it's closer to nine. I think I'm just going to give it a nine because I think okay, Dark Knight is a ten out of ten, and this is a little bit less than that. Okay. Okay. What's uh? All right. Well, I mean, I guess. Wait. We, we've settled our interstellar yeah wait it's discussion it's our third nolan movie mm-hmm. we're pretty good at this mm-hmm. um what what yeah, could be a what comes next it'd be interesting if it'd be interesting if we ever did anything you know another nolan movie i know it would be a shame if we were to cover a nolan movie that may have been mentioned recently I, like that would just be disappointing for me well that's what, enough of that I mean, what do you think uh, is going to happen next week Next week, we have our interview, our big, big interview with Evan Morgan, writer and director of The Kid Detective, our Ooh. first director. First director. It is that it is a behemoth of an episode. It's it's an hour and 15 minutes long, something like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, we, it's monstrous. Our intro and outro is very quick. The, in, the interview is a long interview. We go into a lot of the movie, how he got it made, when he made it, how he made it, um, what it feels like you know to have it been made the whole the whole shebang and you know what they say like directors are pretty um essential to making movies and so so. he um was pretty involved in the production of the film and so there he kind of had a lot to say about it um yeah and it was the first time we had a director on the show so we kind of found out a lot of cool new information but yeah, so you can check that out next week. The week after that, we're going to have our discussion up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll have one more movie, and then maybe we'll have an interesting an interesting little mini-series of things to come. I would say an interesting little mini-series of things to come is a good way to put it. Should we, should we announce what's coming after Kid Detective, or should we wait till Kid Detective? Let's wait till Kid Detective. We'll keep you in suspense. Keep you on your toes. I'm just going to say it, because no okay, no one's come this far. And if you have, thanks. But we'll say it, and then we'll just Well, end. well, be, be sly about it. Be sly about it. As in I should give, like, clues? Yeah, give give a clue. Or give, like, a, a, something it rhymes with. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah, I can't, I, yeah, I can't really remember the interview or the discussion because it's all just such a blur um oh see what i did there yeah um let's get one more dogs have fur
There you go. That's that's interesting. And if you have a dog, uh, it's really it's it's really fun to have a pet. That I can ensure. Sometimes, when I go outside in the winter time, I shiver and say, "Burr." Oh, mm. um. Sometimes you then if you you know you should get a coat made of fur, <laughs> which I guess you already did. But sometimes um, Alexander Hamilton is shot down in a duel against Vice President Aaron Burr. You know? Oh wow, that's that's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, all On right. That note. It's her, guys. It's uh, it's Spike Jones. Is her? No, her. no, no! Cut that! Cut that! <laughs> cut that! You can't! No, no, 